Hello and welcome to Landscape Photography World, the podcast for everyone passionate about landscape photography. I'm Grant Swinburne and I'll be your host on this show, talking to landscape photographers about their motivation, likes and dislikes. Matt Palmer is an award-winning photographic artist based in Alpine, Victoria. Passionate about our natural world and photographs that tell a story or establish a sense of place, Matt has won over 200 awards across documentary and landscape photography categories. Matt runs the Alpine Light Gallery located in Bright, Victoria, with his partner, landscape photographer Mika Boynton. We cover future trends, exploring AI's role in photography, and the significance of feedback in professional growth. I hope you enjoy the show. G'day, Matt. Welcome to Landscape Photography World. How are you going? Yeah, good. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Why don't we start with who you are and why you do what you do? So I'm Matt Palmer and I'm a photographer, but I was originally a graphic designer some 25 years ago. Started off in web design and I joke that progressively throughout my career, I've made worse decisions to move towards less money. So I've ended up (laughs) here in photography now and uh, I run a gallery in Brighton, Victoria with my partner, Mika Boynton. And uh, yeah, I think that's probably the overview. Fair enough. So what really started you along the path of getting into photography how did you transition from graphic design into photography was that something that you found natural or was it a a decision that you'd made i think for me it was transitioning in in from uh, website design into photography um sorry into print design Mm -hmm. and so i had this transition between being ultra focused on pixels and then going into millimeters as a standard unit, and then back into pixels again with photography. Uh, so it was a little bit unusual, but it basically came about because I had clients that needed sort of stock imagery, but didn't want to have stock imagery. So yeah. I'd go out and quickly shoot a skyline or whatever I needed for a job. And then I progressively took on design jobs that were more photography focused. So. I had a job where I was working for the Royal Children's Hospital Foundation. So I took photos of the kids there for medical research and ended up in a job at Brisbane Raw FC, so the uh, football club, where it was a creative director in charge of everything visual. And with a sporting club like that means a lot of photography as well. So Mm -hmm. I was out on the field taking the photos and I was doing the studio lit portrait sessions at the office of all the players. And alongside all of that, I was always shooting my own stuff as well, which for at the start was a lot of live music. Yeah, okay. I guess there's a lot of correlation between the live music and the football. You've got to really focus on getting that fast action shot and the, I, I guess, freezing the motion is really what you're after. Landscape's quite a bit different. What led you into landscape and how did you start making that transition well i think ultimately when i was first acting as a photographer so probably about 10 years of photography i didn't take landscapes at all and i was pretty much not interested in photography unless there was a person in it okay because i was interested in knowing the person and their background and how to photograph them in a way that showed them and But I think I was just comparing landscape photography to what I could see typically around Brisbane, which is a very suburban area. Yeah, right. And it wasn't until I travelled overseas to Norway and Iceland and then I was like, whoa, okay, there's something else here. Mm. And uh, now I tell people that are in a similar position to what I was 
to find the character in the landscape. So if they're a person photographer, there there's people in the landscape, but they're trees or they're rocks or there's some yeah. other thing. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I think that's a really interesting way of ex- expressing it. How did how did that sort of form or that thought form for you? Yeah, I'm not sure to be honest. I think it's just a matter of going out there repeatedly and trying to find things and seeing what draws you to something. And so a lot of landscape photographers, I find they shoot very wide, or at least when they're starting off, they focus on wide kind of landscapes and capturing an entire scene. Yep. And I think from the start, because I've been focused on people quite a bit, I was drawn into the details a lot sooner than yeah. I might have otherwise been. Mm-hmm. So I actually use telephoto lenses for landscapes uh, an awful lot. And it's always been, okay, I can see that there's something within the landscape where I'm being drawn to the scene, but what exactly is in the scene? Is it that I'm drawn to? Is it the way the interplay of light touches that specific hill in the distance? Or is it the wider scene or is it that tree or is it the way that snowdrift trails off? Yep. So I'm always focused on the really specific details. Yeah, cool, cool. And what is it that you're chasing in your personal photography, the stuff that you're doing for yourself? Is it projects? Is it just looking for those little details when you go out? Are you a planner or are you more spontaneous when you're in the field? So I'd say there's probably two sides to that. And one is the exploratory kind of photography where it's not for a specific project or anything. It's just, I think it could be interesting. So I'll go photograph it. And for all of that, it's largely unplanned. I'll just look at the forecast and go, okay, that looks like it will be interesting in this kind of environment. So I'm just going to go there and see what happens. Mm -hmm. So I find if I plan too much, then your success or failure becomes determined by whether you get the shot that you planned for or not. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of the time you'll get there and you'll have your thoughts in mind. And then your plan goes out the window because something completely different happens or the fog is in a different valley or any number of things or variables can happen and you don't get that shot. So I like to leave it pretty open and just be drawn in whatever direction the light and the conditions are drawing me to. But all my personal work in a broader sense, it's really project driven Mm. and it's usually about telling a story or having a stance about something. Yep. Okay. And from that perspective, it's about taking the photography that's going to communicate those things. Yeah. So what part does pre-visualization play in those projects as opposed to that more more spontaneous, you see the light and a subject and you take that? I find when you're shooting a project, if there's a lot of different subjects, you're usually going to stuff up a lot on the first few. So Mm -hmm. uh, whether it's a building or a person or whatever you're photographing, you usually want to have your first few subjects be rather sympathetic to spending maybe a little bit more time on them yeah, and right. shooting them in a lot of different ways and then going, okay, I think that's the right way forward. And then you hone that in for everybody else. So there's a project that I photographed for of abandoned buildings that I'm finally completing after just being in Iceland again recently. Mm-hmm. And when I first did that project, I photographed everything I could about the abandoned buildings and different angles and details and inside. And then when I showed some people that work, they were like, oh, you probably want to make it a little bit more consistent visually in terms of how you're cropping and composing these things. 
Yeah. And so I thought about that the second time I went back. And so I took my safe shots. Um, but then I also think maybe those detail shots could still be useful in other ways. So you might show the building, but then show aspects of the building that's photographed a little differently. Mm, okay. um, and with people, with a people project, you really want quite a lot of consistency. Yeah, It's about working out what the style is and how it's going to say things. And probably my biggest people project has been one on Muslims in Brisbane that I shot quite a few years ago now. Sure. And that had deliberate choices like using black and white because some of them had such bright and colorful clothing that that would have dominated the visuals of the project had I allowed that clothing to speak rather than the people's faces. Yeah, and I guess you're going to have inconsistency where some people are really brightly dressed and others less so visually that would they would compete for the time and probably win for the time the, the eyeball time than the, than the ones where people were less brightly attired. Yeah, so I think for that one, I was thinking about what happens if all of these pictures are in a room and they're around somebody that walks in. Mm -hmm. They're going to see that they're going to be automatically drawn to the colorful person and possibly spend more time with them or, or be biased in some way by that. Whereas I'd rather people see it as a holistic message and then explore each part of it. Yeah. How important is it to have projects to work on? Are you always cooking up the next project while you're still working on the one that you're on? Do you have a, a, a grab bag of projects that are in the back of your mind all the time? Yeah, I probably have more projects than I've got time. So mm. a lot of ideas just sit there for a while. And I try and have one or two things on the go at a time. I'm finishing up the Iceland project now. And part of that was because the first time, the second time I went to Iceland to shoot this project and there were, it was in winter. So there were a lot of places that I was inspired to go to and document. But uh, when I got there, it was basically just a wall of snow and nowhere to stop. So it just wasn't safe to get to those places. Oh, cool. And so this time when I went back, I'm like, okay, I've got a few places that I need to get to call this project completed so i'm not sure yes. if that answered the question because i trailed off there that's <laughs> all right is it important to you to have projects to always uh, yeah. work on is really the key drive that i'm going for there yeah i think it's important to me i think photographically pretty much every good thing that's happened to me has probably been because i was working on a project mm. from ash which was documenting tasmanian bushfire that was Australian Photographer of the Year, which I'm very grateful and lucky to have received, <clears throat> through to some of my work in Muay Thai and the accolades that I received and opportunities that gave me, as well as all sorts of things. But pretty much all of the, the things that really stand out were parts of projects rather than single photos. Yeah. It also sounds like photography was a part of your graphic arts when you started. Was it? Was there ever a time where photography wasn't about art or has it always been that way for you? I'd say there's probably a place to take photographs without putting the pressure on them of calling them art. So mm. there's a lot of work that we produce that's to meet a purpose and it's very purpose-driven and practical. Yep. And yep. I think that's completely fine. So I don't really think about whether it's art or not too much. I think there's a lot of leeway for either personal expression or to meet a project's requirements. But I acknowledge that what I do is probably art. And I just say, just remember that there's good art and there's also 
the possibility of bad art. So sure, rather sure. than simply saying something you don't like and going, oh, that's not art, maybe it's just <laughs> art that you don't like. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> How do you stay motivated? Is it the projects that drive experimentation, new ideas and trying new techniques or is it the more spontaneous work that you're doing that sort of triggers some of that? Yeah, I would say it's projects and seeing if any of those new techniques can tell a story in a better way. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's been a lot of news. I don't know how well it's going to age because it might be a bit of about a month old by the time this goes out, maybe. But uh, of course, Sony have released a new sensor technology and there's all sorts of things always happening in photography that take the game a little bit further. Yeah. And I, I know a lot of people were excited about the idea of shooting 120 frames per second. But for me, it's all about that sync speed. So being able yeah. to finally sync flash with any shutter speed and not lose power. Uh, when I was photographing people, that would have been number one on my list, not more megapixels or anything else, the faster sync speed. Yeah, right. Uh, I think things like that, developments like that are going to open up so many opportunities for creativity mm. that we don't currently have. Yeah. And then it's, okay, we've got this global shutter technology uh, but where's that going to be in a few years and what's going to happen after that as well? So yeah, it's well, an interesting time. I think given that Sony develops most of the sensors for most camera brands anyway now, that I'd, I'd struggle to see. I, mean, I guess I can see why Sony would want to keep it to themselves, but uh, I struggle to see why the others wouldn't be uh, paying top dollar to Sony to, to, to get those sensors as well. And so I can see it spreading across each of the, the camera manufacturers. And yeah, I think some of the stuff that I agree with you, for me, 120 frames a second, uh, and unless I was shooting action, maybe surf and waves and that sort of thing, I, I'm, I might use it, but I, I get by just fine with uh, 15, 20 frames a second. I don't, yeah, I don't I have to agree that. with that. Like, um, I think when I won Sports Photographer of the Year, it was about five frames per second that you could shoot at. Yeah. yeah. And so I think the technology where it actually captures the frames before you press the button, I think that's a game changer for sports. Definitely because for sports photography. People, yeah. Because yeah, you're getting that pre-save of the video. Well, I'm assuming it's just recording the video because effectively 120 frames a second is very high speed video yeah so i think i always told people when they ask about my sports photography is particularly the muay thai is you have to think like the fighters themselves and preempt yeah. what they're doing yeah because by the time you press the button you've already yeah. missed it absolutely yeah yeah if you wait for the action to actually happen you've missed it uh, yeah so i think that will change that but i don't think we need 120 frames per second unless it's perhaps for a scientific purpose or something a lot more uh, <laughs> intricate yeah mate, yeah as, as i say you get those super slow-mo things at 400 frames a second and whatever which look fantastic when you see say a balloon full of water getting hit by a, a pin and that globe of water before it dissipates that it's interesting to look at, but I, I guess it's a fairly specialised video technique that, yeah, I don't know that stills photography really, really going to benefit from that kind of speed that much. Yeah. 
But I'm open to seeing what happens. Somebody... I'm all about advancing technology as well, though. The, the the more that changes, the as as you said, the more opportunities you've got for experimentation and new techniques. If somebody hadn't seen your work, and I'm quite sure some of the overseas listeners that I've got may not have seen some of your work, how would you describe your style and how do you think your style has changed from where you started to where it is now? I think I've just gotten better at what I do, really, okay. uh, in terms of style. Like, I think I've That's always most, good... mostly seen the same way, but just been a lot more refined. And I think I, I was lucky enough to have some mentors. I shot for about 10 years without having anyone really look at my work because it was all commercial. Yep. The client was happy, so that's all that was necessary. And then I finally got involved with the AIPP and I had a couple of photographers, Darren Jew, who shoots for Nat Geo, and mm -hmm. Ian Poole, who was one of Australia's top judges of photography. And they, uh, I was printing through them, so they would always take a look at my images every time I came into print and give me advice. And it was like, oh, your eye's being drawn to this place, but there's nothing to reward the viewer when you get to that spot and lo yeah, lots right. of different things. So. I think uh, I've addressed more of those visual things over time and become a lot more detail focused <clears throat> on like the, the one to 2% things that make things slightly better sure, and sure. gotten all of the big problems out of the way. But then I always say to people, if you're not taking some bad photos, then you're probably not trying hard enough because I think that's necessary to explore something properly yeah. is to take some bad photos of it as well because not everything's <laughs> going to work out if you're trying things. Uh, so I still take plenty of those. But in terms of describing my style, I try and keep things as simple as possible. I try and make the picture about the one thing that I'm interested in. Yep. And I also shoot a lot of telephotos. You get a lot of compressions. You know, I like to have big mountains and things look like they should look in relation to other objects. Yeah. It's probably a summary, but I, yeah, I'm not sure how to describe my style. I'm probably a bit too close to it. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. How much do you think you would spend in terms of time in going through your images and saying, oh, talking about that 1% and 2% that you mentioned before and saying, okay, this one, I lifted the tripod up or down by six inches and that changed the perspective or so forth, you know. How much of your time do you spend thinking about that sort of stuff now compared to where you were a few years ago? Yeah, probably to give you an indication, the first time I went to Iceland and Norway, being a people photographer, I didn't even take a tripod with me. Fair and enough. then to Iceland, I took two tripods with me just in case because we were running a tour. So I didn't want to make, I wanted to make sure everybody else had access to a, a tripod as well. But yep. uh, it's, yeah, definitely slowed down and paid more attention while I'm shooting. So uh, looking around the edges of the frame, seeing if there's any branches that are going to come in and bother me in post-production and just making sure all those little details are particular and, and done correctly. But I find I do more of that if I know the shot's going to be good. And there's a lot wow. of times where I'm like, oh, I'll try this out, but I won't spend as much time on that because if I do, then I'm missing the time on something else. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that a big part of your work is storytelling. What part do you think storytelling plays in photography in general, but also more specifically your work in terms of 
the way that the viewer engages with the image. It's probably a little different now that we run a gallery as well. Obviously, there's a lot of people that are focused on how easy it is to make AI images and things these days. Sure. And I'm not feeling particularly threatened by that because I think it's a really interesting tool, but also because I'm lucky enough to be in the gallery and people come in and they want to know what's happening in a photograph yeah. or they want to know about your experience of having taken it. For example, Mika has a photograph of a tree uh, with zodiacal light in it, which is basically like the light doesn't actually make sense to the photograph. It's light reflected off dust in space. And then it just happens to be behind this tree. And then it's got the Milky Way above it and things like that. When you can talk about the experience of having been there and actually being as surprised as the viewer might be to see light in that position. And you can talk through like how you felt and what was going on and how you shot it. It adds so much more value than just having a picture of something that's pretty. Yeah. So I think in single landscapes, I still think uh, even just having an experience that's connected to it is really important. And then for projects, you obviously have a lot more photographs that you can tell that story with. And when I say story, it might even just be explaining a feeling or how something is. It doesn't have to be a chronological story like we might see in a film or something like that. It can be a narrative in a broader sense than that. And projects, that's ultra important, have some sort of narrative that ties it together and connects all the images up. So I think that's really important. Yeah, cool, cool. How do you define success with your photography? And I don't necessarily just mean financial success and being able mm. to keep the, the lights on, etc. Yeah, that's a good question. It's a tricky question. So... When Mika and I opened the gallery, so this is going to become anecdotal now, we talked to a number of people that run galleries and a few of them felt like they were trapped because they could only show the work that would sell. And it was usually like the local area and the most iconic spots. Yep. And we said at that time, we would rather go out of business than feel like we're trapped by our own photography mm -hmm. and feel like we could only show those things and not really express ourselves. Yep. So in the space, we're accepting of having images that don't perform as well, but maybe they mean something to us. So I think success is really just taking photographs that mean something to you. So you don't want to go out and invest a lot of time. And this is part of the process anyway. It's going to happen. But uh, you go out and you take photos and you're like, I don't really feel anything about these photographs. And to go out and have an opportunity where you come back and you're like, actually, I feel really strongly attached to these photographs. Like they're, they're important to me. I think taking images that are important to yourself, that's my version of success at least. And I think other versions of success probably come from that. Yeah, fair enough. Do you think the, you, you mentioned the desire to keep things expressive as, as you mentioned as opposed to being more commercially accessible or whatever the the, the term might be to the, the the buying public do you think that has really driven an ethos with how you've set the gallery up and how you're actually running it yeah i think so and it makes the whole experience more fun for us as well and i think if we're having more fun and we're more attached to our photography, then we're going to explain it 
in a more engaging way with people. Yeah, I think that's been a really important part of what we do. And it's really enjoyable as well when uh, people come in and they think that they've got an expectation of what a photograph uh, could be or what a gallery could be. And then they have that expectation grown or, oh, I didn't know photography could be like that. Or I didn't know you could photograph that in such a way. And Mm. even having more traditional artists come in and maybe look down their nose a little bit at photography and then leave going, actually, that was really imaginative and artistic and creative work. And maybe I've got a little bit more respect for that field (laughs) of expression. You mean they they come in expecting you to have uh, just gone out there and pushed a button, yeah? (laughs) Yeah, so they're probably coming in and expecting something a little bit more pedestrian. And yeah. that's okay. There's pe- people that are always going to want the the local icon in the center. Yeah, of the, well, the, the iconic and, scenes yeah. are iconic for a reason. People mm. engage with them. They look at it, and for I know for a lot of people buying photography as art for putting on their walls, they're buying it because it's driving driven by a memory or driven by a feeling that they've had in that place. Yeah, and I. Th- like there's also I've been to that place and I really want to mm. photograph of it because of what it means to me. But we like to also be able to show a place that people know, but in a really different way. And maybe they buy it because of the feeling rather than the place. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. How do you balance the running the gallery and getting out and shooting? Because that you, you mentioned being trapped by being in a gallery. I've spoken to other photographers that have gone out of business in their gallery because they weren't getting out and shooting enough or they didn't feel they were getting out and shooting enough and they they felt trapped by being in the gallery. How do you balance that? We're, I'd say, unlucky and lucky at the same time (laughs) in that a lot of our business comes in about four months of the year. So we get really busy over summer when people come to do the outdoors, walking and biking and all that kind of thing. And then we also get incredibly busy around autumn when people come to see the autumn leaves. Yeah. Uh, so during those two times, we're pretty much gallery bound and we might get out of the doors in time to go for a sunset or we might do a sunrise before work uh, because that the days are longer during that time. Yep. yep. Um, but ultimately, our shooting definitely goes down. But then in winter, it becomes really quite quiet and one thing we learned from others as well is that you never know when somebody that wants to spend walks through the door but we told ourselves that we weren't going to become preoccupied with that idea if we want to shut the doors and and go and take photographs then that's what we'll do so we schedule a lot of travel in the winter months and also try and get out into the snow as much as possible yeah cool cool how did you and Mika make the choice to set up the gallery was it just something that popped up in a conversation was it something that you'd always had as a a plan together how how did the the decision to to do it come about i think we both independently wanted to open a gallery and i was actually looking at opening opening one in tasmania where i was living before i uh, got together with mika and i was looking at deloraine because i thought that was a pretty little kind of Yep. boutique sort of town and it's in between a lot of interesting places so yeah. you, get enough, uh, you get enough tourist traffic there to make it worthwhile yeah yeah and mm-hmm. so i was looking at that but i also thought i should do my due diligence and i've written off the mainland 
but without actually really knowing that much about anything except Queensland where I used to live. Yeah, and enough. so I was looking at Victoria because I thought access to Melbourne is always a good thing. What is an area that could interest me that would work? And I kind of looked into the whole bunch of different areas. And I'm like, okay, there's Bright. It's got access to three different mountain ranges within a short drive. People go through there to get to the snowfields. It just looks like the right place to do something like that. Yep. And I'd never been to Bright before, never seen it, just looked at it on some maps. And I knew Mika was from Bright, but hadn't really talked to her properly. I just met her at a few events. And I just, uh, thought I'd reach out to her and gauge how she would respond to it. And I thought, how would you feel about a photographer moving to Bright? Because yeah. I don't want to step on anyone's toes or yeah, damage sure. anyone else's uh, profession or practice. And she said, I don't, you do whatever you might like, probably different words, but totally welcome to live here or do whatever, but don't open a gallery. And she had the the dream of opening a gallery in Bright because this is her hometown for quite a while and had come back here from Western Australia to do that eventually. And then completely independent of that, just because we kept in touch, uh, we ended up together and we were like, okay, that's something that we can do <laughs> and we can do it together. And there was uh, real estate comes up in Bright and it's pretty much gone before it even gets to the market. Yeah. It's just somebody knows someone else and they tap them on the shoulder and go, hey, do you want this property? Yeah. Uh, so something will close and then something will open and you won't even see an in-between. So we saw a place actually come onto the market that was an old travel agent and we're like, oh, we should look at this place. And it was the day that it was listed. We looked at it and I think we made the decision that night to uh, lease it and we had to refurb it and everything as well. Oh. But we had to act pretty quickly because it's not easy to get commercial real retail property here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we'd really just jumped straight into the deep end and I was lucky enough that I've had a lot of experiences and so has Mika that I was like, okay, I don't 100% know what I'm in for, but I know that I'll be able to swim. We'll just work it out as we go. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. How important is position in that or was it just the in terms of the place that you chose or was it just that's available let's take it i think we've learned that position means almost everything as we've yeah. gone yeah. and we did choose a place location in real estate yeah. <laughs> so we're not in the busiest part of town but we are across the road from the visitor center and from the bright brewery and we also get a lot of people that walk past when they go to dinner and yeah. we're not open then but they'll see pictures in the window and go, oh, we'll come back to this place. Cool. So we get a lot of people that say, oh, I looked through the window last night and now I'm here. So I always say people don't really plan to buy art or at least not our art. We might have a few fans that are like, oh, I want one of your pieces one day. But yeah, right. ultimately people walk through the door and they make no personal commitment to buy anything. They just want to have a look, as everyone says. And then they connect to something. And we don't really sell artwork. We just say that the artwork sells itself and we help people if they need it. Yeah. Cool. And uh, we're just lucky enough that enough people connect to the work that they buy it and nice. keep our doors open. Um, we could probably do things a lot better and we're learning a lot as we go as well. And we could probably be more salesy, but we prefer people to be comfortable visiting whenever they like. Yeah. and not feeling like they're making a commitment by walking in. Yeah. I certainly know when I'm shopping, whether it's for art or 
and just about anything else. I'm leave me alone, and if I want something, I'll come and ask about it if I'm not sure. But if I want it, yeah, exactly. I'll probably grab it, take it to the counter, and just buy it. You know? Yeah. So our gallery is set up, so we have a bit of an office at the back, and it feels yeah. a little bit detached from the gallery. So we usually get up and we say hello to people and just welcome them. If you've got any questions, feel free to come and grab yeah, me. Cool. Um, just to break down that barrier, because I feel like if you walk into a space and people out the back and they're doing stuff, it's not 100% comfortable to go, oh, can you help me with this? Yeah, So right. we do that introduction. Yeah. And that's when I see people that feel really hesitant to be approached. It's almost yeah. like the defense goes up. Yeah. And then when they realize you don't actually want to sell them anything or you don't want to ask what they're looking for and like lead them down that road, they go, oh, okay, it's just a photographer and they're there if I need it and that's it. Yeah, cool, cool. One of the things I ask a lot of the photographers on the show is how they price their work. Do you have a, a f- sort of formula for that now or is it just something that you take or have always taken by gut feel? I think when people are starting off, they start with the old three times rule. Yeah, which I don't know that you can really do when you run a gallery because it's a little bit more complex than that. Sure. But we came up, we understood what our costs were and that's also our weekly costs of actually having the gallery open as well. Yeah. And we made a general estimate on how much we might sell and then broke down those costs over what we might sell just as a general thing. And then we had a look at what else was in the market and kind of more at our level in the market as well. So not like somebody at the market stall that just wants to sell volume or whatever. With some people, they want to sell a lot of volume and they do it cheaply. And some people want to sell a couple of pieces and do it at a really substantial price. And we're somewhere in the middle because we yeah. don't really want to offend the locals either. Yeah, fair enough. We like it that we're not cheap but we're affordable for special occasions so it's not like something that you buy and you you can just dispose of it it's um a special thing and it yeah. costs a decent amount but it's not going to break the budgets yeah uh, so that's where we price ourselves and we just ensure that works for the business and we have tweaked that a little bit as we've gone and we've we print with we print some of our things with inkjet lab up in brisbane with mark glass okay yep and i've done work with him for quite a long time because he used to print some of my things for weddings and sports and other things over the years and he's really good about providing advice and he's been in the business for a really long time both as a photographer and a printer yeah i even went to him with our spreadsheets after about a year i'm like these are our most popular products this is what we're selling this is how much we can expect to sell every week yep Um, these are our prices and what our income is are there anything that is there anything that you see as a red flag or that we're doing wrong? And he was like, first of all, I'm impressed that you have all this documentation because we try and keep all, all of this stuff so that we can learn what's going on as well. Yeah. But there was only a few things to tweak and we raised prices on a couple of different canvas products and things. So we don't 100% have it nailed down. But I think if you start at a healthy place where your business is going to be sustainable, then you can always adapt from there and learn new things, trial new products and see what what works. And you'll find that you sell more of certain things that you weren't expecting and less of things that you thought were a sure bet. So you just adapt as you go. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's the important thing is you mentioned that analytics 
side of the business where you are recording what's going on in the business so that you know what sells, what doesn't sell or what, which then particularly when you're a, a physical print business in a physical location, there's a lot of people running their own sort of online uh, print shop. They don't actually have to print anything until somebody makes an order. But you guys have got to have that stock or have that print available and sometimes in multiple size and formats and so forth, different frames, etc. So how do you go about sort of making those decisions or how did you go about making those decisions up front about what you want to actually have in stock in the shop? So a lot of our sales are on demand as well. So okay. people will see something on the wall and then they'll want it in a different format. So we do a lot of that. Um, we don't have as much stock on hand except to display. And then we sell off what like people right. can either buy what we've got on display or they can go, I like that image, but I'd like it presented in this way. Okay. So that's a lot of the businesses, people that want something custom or like in one of our other sizes or they see a print in paper, but actually they like it in canvas because they want to put it in the lounge room behind the couch kind of thing. Yeah. So there's a lot of that. And then in terms of what we actually show, because one of the classic sayings in sales and particularly artwork and photography is you sell what you show. Yeah. So if you're not showing something, you can't really expect it to sell. And so we have a meeting every season where we're like, what would we like to get? So at the moment, we know that we're going to do an order of these acrylic blocks that we get. Yep. And we've got an order for some metal and uh, a couple of paper prints and things. We have a temp folder and we just drag photos that we're liking at the moment that feel relevant to that time yeah. uh, into there. And then we just get together and go, all right, what are we getting? And we have a um, usually a pretty smooth discussion, but sometimes a bit of a very passionate discussion as well. But that, that's a good thing. How, how do you get on when Mika loves a shot but you don't like it or vice versa? And how do you solve the impasse? One thing that we've done in the past is we've chosen some of the pieces from each other's body of work to cool. do. So we're like, okay, you've got a free pass to print anything of mine that you want to do. And that's that. But we are also very comfortable with saying, I don't understand that photograph of yours or I'm not completely on board with that one. But if you believe in it, then I'll back you on it. Okay. And we do that a, the, the, a bit. And there's times where I've, where even Mika's taken a photograph and I'm like, we need to get that in a gallery and it has uh, in the gallery and it has to be big. We should do a big canvas of it. And um, Mika's been like, yeah, I'm not sure about that. But then when we've done it, it's been a hit. So yeah, yeah. we trust each other's intuition. And even if we don't agree with it. Yeah. I think that's really important. One of the other things that I, I, I talk about a lot to uh, people that are running their own photography business is how you balance everything that you've got to do because particularly running a gallery and likewise running workshops, etc., it can get very full on. As you say, it gets very busy at certain times of the year, but uh, that process of taking the shots, getting the print sorted out, marketing, etc., doing your financials, having those meetings, et cetera, can end up being very long days. Sometimes they're very enjoyable, sometimes less. But how do you balance everything that you've got to do, the marketing, the finance, et cetera? To be honest, I'm not sure if I've found that balanced as yet. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, you've definitely summed it up pretty well, though. So a lot of people will come to me and they'll talk about becoming a professional photographer. And I think if you're happy where you are in life and you have a, a great job, then don't become a photographer. <laughs> Not so if you want to make people. a lot of money anyway. <laughs> yeah, there's so many people either in the trades or that own a business that pretty much can run most of itself these days. And they love photography. The next step seems to always be, oh, if I love photography, maybe I should sell things or sure. make it a business. That's Once you change your relationship with photography, it's a different thing. So I'm lucky enough that I'm probably borderline obsessive about photography. I'm going to do it no matter what. Yeah, And I'm going to do it my way no matter what, because I'm pretty stubborn. So it hasn't affected my relationship with photography too much. But when you're talking about, okay, I've got to go shoot a wedding this weekend and then there's an event next Wednesday, I don't think that's the kind of photography that people get into it to do. Some people are really excited by weddings and that's fine, but it's really hard work. And I think if you're making good money in the trades or in a business and your idea of photography is, oh, I'm going to go to Iceland or Norway or I'm going to travel into the Kimberley or whatever for a month and just shoot whatever I like without restriction, then that seems the better deal to me um, because <laughs> it, there is a whole lot of work. Even with our recent doubling and tours, so it was our first international tour together that we ran and we'd both done things in the past, probably not to the same level. And we learned a lot from that experience because basically we learned that while like I feel pretty comfortable in saying that the level of service that we offered is probably far beyond most tours. Mm -hmm. Like we're just a hundred percent committed to making sure everyone gets what they want out of the tour. And it meant probably 13, 14 hour days for 10 days straight. Yep. And but by the end of it, we were completely wrecked. Like our immune systems, because we had just been working flat out and loving a lot of it, but we were just completely wrecked. And we're like, I don't think we could run a tour that way again, but mm, yeah. we wouldn't want to run it differently than that and compromise. So yeah. if we you ever want to do put it everything again, into it, but uh, you also need your sleep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so... I, there's a lot of realities about photography that aren't really surface level and even what not going into too much detail but just obviously people see how much they might pay for a tour but then we got home and we had 29 pages of zero reconciliations to do yeah. all in foreign currencies and with receipts that are in foreign language and Mika took on most of that, but there's so many things like that that are minor nightmare. Just one one minor detail that I sometimes forget to do if I do anything overseas is dealing with the, the local GST, VAT, whatever you want to call it, and trying to claw that back from the local authorities before you leave is an absolute nightmare because, you, as you say, you've got to find all your receipts and sometimes they're not in the right language and you're sitting there going, okay, can I claim that one back or not? <laughs> yeah, I guess the answer is we probably have a job that looks really good on the surface but there's also a lot of work that we don't really like doing yeah that's always the way though you and until you start to peel the onion you don't know uh, what it's actually going to contain yeah exactly i want to talk a little bit about bright and the local area there how has that changed the way that you shoot it's 
clearly changing what you shoot because you're going out to shoot the local area, but it, has it made any difference to the way that you shoot at all? Probably not so much from a technical standpoint, but in how I approach it, I would say yes. When I was in Tasmania, I felt very confident that I understood what the local issues were. Mm -hmm. So I knew, for example, which forests were being logged, where there were illegal things happening, uh, which places should be protected. I understood a lot more about the geography and what was special about different places. And so my photography and landscape photography had a really clear aim. And I would often focus on places that were probably deserving of preservation. So like the Tarkine and areas like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was never really a question of what should I photograph or why should I photograph it? And coming to Victoria, I've never lived here before. And I didn't want to be that guy that comes in and starts preaching to the locals through his photography about how things should be done. So I've had to really slow down and go, okay, I need to understand what's going on in this place and what's different about here. And definitely the threats to this environment are very different from what's happening in Tasmania. So for example, we've got the beetles that do rings around the snow gums and kill those off or which are actually a native species, by the way. So that the beetles themselves aren't a bad thing. It's just the warming climate has allowed those beetles to thrive a lot more than they probably should. And then the Brumbies, that's a really big issue. A very here. sensitive issue for some too. Yeah. So I, there's there's people on one side that want to keep them there and there's people on the other side that want to get them out. Yeah, so I probably fall on the latter side, but I feel oh. that's because the argument is often phrased in very loaded ways. Absolutely. That are quite biased. So I think a lot of people, they look at it as we have Brumbies or no Brumbies. Yeah. And I'm an animal lover myself. And if I saw a Brumby in the wild, I would be amazed uh, and want to photograph that. And I would feel some sort of empathy and connection to that. But at the same time, I see the argument as, okay, it's Brumbies or it's, I think it's the she-oak lizard whose habitat is being destroyed by the activity of the Brumbies. Yeah. And I'm siding with the native species that are affected rather than totally. thinking of it as Brumbies or no Brumbies. And I think if people think about, okay, it's this and all of this native species, the argument's probably quite a lot different. Mm. And that's not to say that I wouldn't like some sort of humane addressing of that problem. <laughs> and it's a really difficult one. And, and I, I think don't that's, have answers, that's a but... big part of the problem as well as the, mm. the way that the the population of brumbies in the high country gets managed is pretty brutal from what i've seen yeah Yeah. do you have a favorite spot that just keeps calling you back that you always want to shoot in the local area that spot doesn't have to be local. (laughs) locally it's mount buffalo so i feel like that's the mountain that just keeps giving it's a very different kind of mountain than the other ones with hotham and falls creek we're talking about mountain ranges that used to be the size of everest and over millions of years have worn down so they're like an ancient mountain range but very hilly if i can Mm. call it that and then mount buffalo is just giant chunks of rock and the different interactions between rock and the weathering and also the snow gums and things that are on that plateau. There's endless possibilities up there. Yeah, fantastic. What about internationally or 
uh, elsewhere in Australia. <laughs> yeah, internationally, before the latest trip, I probably would have said Iceland. But I feel like that's been, uh, I've had a bit of a disconnect with that after the last experience. Yeah, fair enough. And not because we didn't see beautiful things, but just because tourism has changed and a lot. Yeah, right. I was lucky enough to be there the first time when there was only about 200,000 visitors a year. Yep. And it really wasn't geared towards tourists. For example, there's a little town of Vic on the south coast. Yep. It's a very popular photo spot these days. And the first time I visited, it was the road, a few houses, a church and a petrol station. And that was it. And if you were hungry, you had the petrol station. That's where you were eating. Nice. And now it's like a fully fledged tourist town with a massive, it's got the supermarket and the outdoor stores and restaurants everywhere and hotels and so many hotels. And it just feels different. So the first time I was there, like I was lucky enough to go to some of the iconic places where no one else was there. Yeah. Like Selja Landsfoss and Raina Stranger. I was there when there might have only been two other people in the whole place. And the yeah. first time I saw Yokel Salon, which is a glacial lagoon, I ran over the hill and there were just a couple of people in the distance and that was it. And now you go there and it's not, it feels more like a theme park. There's just so many people and huge car parks full of buses and everyone shuttles in and off. And it's great that many people are getting to see something that's so beautiful, but it really does change the nature of the experience of being there as well. Mm, totally, totally. What's your most memorable experience? There's quite a lot because I always say being somewhere uncomfortable usually gives you the best images. I like to be on the edge of things, whether that's like the, a storm front or the behind of a storm or some sort of changeable environment. And I think that results in the best images. In terms of specific things, and I can't really remember too many except perhaps uh, couple of stuff ups here and there so there was one time i was in iceland and uh, i was driving on route one and uh, it was winter and i soon i was like okay i'll go to the top of this hill and we'll just see what's going on around us and we'll either keep taking this road if it looks like it clears up yep. or we'll go around a detour that takes about three hours and i was really right. keen not to do the detour because there were winter storms and things coming but I didn't make it up this hill because I realized once the snow got a bit too deep that I was actually sitting on ice as well. And the whole road, it was like there was a mini tempor temporal glacier over the road. It was like a giant slab of ice. Yeah. When I was backing up, every time I backed up, I'd slip closer to the edge of the road, which <laughs> was downhill. Uh -huh. And so I kept backing up, kept slipping. And I'm like, okay, we're not going to get back onto the road without going over the edge here. So we can either keep doing what we're doing or go off the road the right way. <laughs> and so I swung it into reverse and put on the accelerator. So I'd spin the car around and then drove off the edge of the hill. And I pretty much just aimed for where I could see grass because I, fig I figured if there was grass that I could see, then the snow was thin enough that I could possibly drive on it. Yep. But in retrospect, oh, incredibly dumb situation <laughs> to get myself into. Because there could have been like little streams and things under yeah, the snow. Could have been bog and rocks or and... yeah. So I got pretty lucky on that one, but definitely a lot more conservative with that in in future. But it's a very scary place to drive in winter if you haven't yeah. lived somewhere like Canada or uh, somewhere like that. I'd gone from 
our summer in Brisbane straight into Icelandic winter and driving on the other side of the road and everything is ice. Like it's not even that they're going to de-ice the road. It's just the road no, is ice. Yeah, that's what you're dealing with there. Mm. Yeah, so that was a really interesting experience. And whilst I made a few mistakes like that, the only time I've ever intent- unintentionally gone off the road was actually at Cradle Mountain, which um, I was actually a bit annoyed by because I was like, how dare you get me like that? <laughs> I was doing basically 10 kilometres an hour around the corner because I'm like, oh, this looks a bit slippy. I'll go slow. Yeah. And even at that speed, there was nothing I could do. I was no off grip. the road. Yeah. yeah. That's the thing. Any momentum with no grip is uh, a recipe for sliding. Yeah. 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 So yeah, a lot of hairy experiences like that that you get yourself into. But sometimes if you get out the other side unscathed, then those are the things you remember as well. Mm. What do you think photography has taught you about nature? I, I think photography, not so much teaching me about nature, but motivating me to learn about nature. Okay. Yeah. So I heard another guest that you had on recently that was saying, oh, it's not so much what they've been taught, but it's how they look at things. Yeah. I think it slows you down. It makes you look at the small things a lot more. Mm-hmm. So there's like different plants and interactions that you just wouldn't even bother looking at if you were just going for a walk or a hike or something. And um, that you then slow down and look at the beauty of and wonder how that was formed or what kind of rock that is or what plant that is. So I'd say it's been a huge motivator to understand what I'm looking at a lot more. And mm. from that motivation comes a lot more knowledge about things as well. Fantastic. How do you deal with creative blocks? Have you ever had one? Have you ever struggled with it? How do you, have, have you got any strategies or things that you do to, to try and avoid them? I probably did more so in design. And also I used to be a really terrible illustrator and I was very self-aware of that. So I used to draw things that looked appropriate when they were drawn terribly. Um, <laughs> if I can put it that way. A long time ago, I had this goal. I was a lot younger and more prone to conflict and doing silly things. But I saw some kind of crazy art in an art gallery and I thought maybe I should deliberately draw some really just terrible illustrations and see if I can get them exhibited somewhere. And I ended up getting them into semi-permanent, which is the basically the top design annual yep. that you can be featured in. But yeah, those are probably the times where I've had creative blocks. I think these days, there's times where I'm maybe not feeling it as much. Yeah. And that would be my equivalent of a creative block. I just don't really feel like shooting at the moment. Um, That kind of mood. But I think once you're out there, that tends to fade a little bit. And if you remove the expectation of having to create something and just go, well, the worst thing that that can happen is I go for a nice walk or I reconnect to that place then it's acceptable to go and not even take any photographs. And that will get you through it a lot of the time because maybe you see something that you're just like, forget about that. I have to capture what's going on right now. Mm. Um, I think in the past or maybe for other people, if you're just struggling to create in general, maybe developing a project from scratch, even if the project sounds like it might be a little bit of work. Yep that can really give you some guidance and you can approach the project even as a job if you need to. Yeah. Okay. So say uh, I'm going to document this local thing in my community and this is how I'm going to document it. All right. If that's what you're going to do, you better get out there and start doing it. 
and then you work yourself out of it. Yeah, that's cool. You mentioned getting some other eyes on your work and some assistance in trying to develop that one and two percent. How do you see that people can leverage that sort of collaboration and build a community of people around them that can actually help them? How important do you think that is? And how do you think people can actually achieve that in their work? Because one one of the things a lot of photographers say is that they're introverts and they might share their work on Instagram or whatever, but they might not necessarily show their work to somebody for critical analysis. And I think that's something that a lot of people miss out on is that critical evaluation. I criticise my own work quite harshly, but I know other people will look at it quite differently in the way that they engage with it. How important is that, I think, or do you think, to uh, to helping people progress? Yeah, I'd probably shape just one part of what you said, and that's where you said you self-critique. I think uh, we all self-critique and some of us a lot harsher than others. I know I'm yeah. pretty harsh and go, what on earth was I thinking or what is this rubbish? And then two days later, actually, it's not so bad. But I think uh, the value of critique is also telling you when you've done something really good and maybe you, you're so inside of your own thoughts that yeah. you don't realise that. You're, you're seeing all the faults, but other people look at it and go, that's amazing, you know. Yeah, maybe they see something special in a piece of your work that maybe you weren't identifying. So, for example, of that, I had, there used to be print critiques that the AIPP used to run. Yeah. yeah. And you could bring along prints and then the judges would talk about them. And I used to always see that as a great opportunity not to take the work that I thought I was going to enter into things, but to, to bring work that I thought was on the edge. I, yeah. I don't know about this work or I think it's a bit, I'm, I'm the not stuff sure you're unsure about. Yeah. yeah. And there was one that I brought along, which was a Muay Thai image. And it was probably my fifth pick for a folio of four. And a judge said, I'd probably have to give it 100 because if I'm thinking about it as taking points away for everything that's wrong with it, it's perfect. There's just nothing wrong with this particular photograph. It's just amazing moment, all, blah, 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 all this good stuff. And I had seen what I thought were the things to take points away from it, but they didn't care about that at all. Yeah. They cared about the thing that had been captured. And so that really changed my mind about that image and that ended up going to get a gold distinction, which is like 95 out of 100 at the Nationals and won a title from that and all sorts of things. So sometimes you need somebody else to actually identify the good things too, mm. especially if you're suffering from something like imposter syndrome Yep. Or you're one of those people that criticizes yourself quite harshly. Sometimes the actual um, common sense uh, from somebody else is actually saying, oh, actually, that's a lot better than what you think it is. Yeah. yeah. But apart from that, uh, I was pretty lucky to be part of the community and I, I'm quite introverted as well. So I generally say I'm pretty good at talking to people, but I don't like, I don't get energy from talking to people. Yeah. Uh, so I, when I first engaged with that community, I gave myself a job because I like the worst, um, my version of hell would be if I had to network with people in a room and I didn't know anyone, that's my mm. hell. So when I had a job to do though, I had a reason and an excuse to go up to every person in that room and introduce myself and go, Hey, I'm doing this job for yeah. the community that we're in. So if you need anything, just give me a shout. What do you do? 
etc etc so i think if you're struggling in that situation and you can relate to not wanting to just walk up to random people or mm -hmm. even message random people if you're online or something like that then give yourself a job like you might volunteer to help out a facebook group that you're in help the moderators with things or you might like run some sort of photo critique thing even if you're not the one giving the critique you could be like oh well, i've got to find three good people that can talk about images and then i've got to put a call out into our community for people to submit the images and if you're managing those processes you're naturally going to meet people and become more involved and you might be somewhere at some point and that person somebody goes oh you that person that runs the photography thing that you organized and yeah, then cool. that's a conversation in a different aspect as an introvert that was in the AIPP I, and gave myself jobs to do, I had lots of people that would visit me in Tasmania, even when I was living in the middle of nowhere, they'd be like, oh, I'll swing by and built so many great relationships based on what was originally just being doing a service, basically. But it just gives you an opportunity to connect. So what do you do yourself to connect to other photographers? So you've got a podcast and I think a podcast is a fantastic way to get to know lots of photographers because they're going to remember who you are and you've had an in-depth conversation with them. Is that something that was a motivator or do you do other things as well? Initially, no, it wasn't. Though in, in part, when I look back on it, it, it was definitely something that was there in the back of my mind. But the, re the reason I really started the podcast was because I was going nuts during lockdown. I had a, I think it was 165 days where you couldn't go any more than 5Ks away from the front door. And so it was, okay, how do I create and e express myself and express some of what I want to do without and I, fun, funnily enough I had actually been listening to a lot of other podcasts like Nick Page and Matt Payne and some of the other local guys that had, had done stuff in the past and thinking yeah I could probably do that and so that was one of the reasons why it started but looking back on it having that community of photographers that I've now had an in-depth conversation with. It's definitely changed my approach to when I'm out shooting and I see somebody with somebody else with a camera. In the past, I probably would never have gone up and being the introvert that I am, I wouldn't have gone and said hello. But now I do in a lot more cases than um, I would have done in the past. And so it's enabled me to connect with a lot of people but it's also enabled me to connect differently with my own work because it's listening to the stories and the inspiration that some of these people that I've spoken to yourself included really fantastic for me to be able to apply some of what I'm hearing and what I'm learning out of it into what I'm doing. Yeah, and I think talking about photography and showing people photography in an environment that I'd say is level, if yeah. that makes sense. So people are sharing from all sides of the table. Yeah. That's going to yeah. help you learn a lot as well and develop your photography in your eye. So I probably phrased it that way because it can be a little bit uncomfortable for people if, say, for example, you're like, oh, I like this person's photography. I'm going to send them a whole folio of my images and just ask yeah, them yeah, for feedback. Yeah. Whereas if it's like, that. <laughs> yeah, if it's, I'm going to get a bunch of people together at a cafe 
and we're going to bring five images each and talk about them, then that feels a little bit more inclusive and less like it's one person's job. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if and somebody were to do that, then they would probably learn a lot and meet a lot of people as well. Absolutely. And I think that's a great way to, to go about it. Pardon me. What do you see as the biggest challenge facing photographers right now? I'd say there's probably a few different answers. There's, of course, the AI, and I think that's a challenge for specific photographers who I think are probably already looking elsewhere for work. Yep. So I've done some talks about pretty much AI is going to kill off stock photography in general, I think, and I is think already well on the way to doing so. Yeah, I think fashion photography is in at real risk as well. I think the, mm. the, the places, if you're looking for safe havens, landscape and real estate and event photography are probably so weddings and corporate events and those sorts of things because you can't use AI to create somebody's wedding photos. Yeah, you could probably enhance some of them slightly. but <laughs> Yeah, but the person still has to remember what's in the photograph as well. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. That rhinoceros definitely wasn't at our wedding. You know? <laughs> so I think that's probably one answer. That's probably a bit more expected. I guess everyone's started, uh, If even if they're not fully on top of everything that's going on, they've probably heard the whispers about that. Mm. And it's, it's. I think it's going to make some photographers their job easier. Like I use AI quite a bit already for some of my writing tasks or Yep. You can use it to check the SEO on your website or all sorts of things. So I've even thought about doing a presentation that's just talking about how photographers can use AI to their benefit. Yeah. yeah. There, there is a lot of ways that it can actually help photographers, not just kill them off. But I think also another challenge is both ourselves and the community in general. So I think my experience with the community has been largely positive and that's because of different ways I've approached it. But there is also a lot of kind of some strange negativity in the community as well yep. that I think some of us need to be more mindful of. So, for example, there was uh, a girl that I heard of who had won a competition that I had judged. And then because she had won that competition and some people didn't agree, she copped a lot of online abuse. Yeah. And I just think that's not really helping anyone and it's possibly dissuading somebody from engaging with the community that possibly has something to contribute because they've had that experience. Yep. I know I've had um, pretty similar experiences as well. So people think uh, winning Australian Photographer of the Year is the best thing. And it was good on some levels, but it also came with a whole lot of baggage that I didn't realize at the time. Mm -hmm. Like when I won that, I had at the time I was teaching at TAFE, teaching photography to students. And I also worked for a fashion brand in Tasmania. And that's the only work that I was doing, just those two jobs. And yet there were rumors going around the internet that I'd been poaching work from other Tasmanian photographers and undercutting them and doing all this really horrible business yeah. practices. <laughs> and I think like, why does, does this even warrant somebody's time to imagine this crap? Yeah. Unfortunately, there's a lot of that out there that you don't see. So I, I just think... It's important for people in the photography community, if you see people doing stuff, uh, it, it's a good approach it as they're trying to do things to make photography better rather than necessarily pulling them down because they're doing it a certain way. Yeah, totally. Yeah. What do you think about the future of photography? 
I think it's largely exciting. I don't know what it what it is, but it's exciting. <laughs> you know, we've got this AI stuff happening, and that's scary to some. I think that's really interesting, and I've started using it in a lot of different ways, and also for some side projects. And I don't call myself an artist for using AI. If anyone's stuck on what you should call yourself, I'd probably say. If you want to talk yourself up a bit, but still make stuff using AI, just call yourself an art director, because yeah. that's what you're doing. You're directing somebody else to create art or a machine in this case. Yeah. So that's easy out for you. You're directing art, but you're not making it and you're not an artist. You're just directing it. Yeah. And yeah. I'm comfortable with that in uh, what I'm doing. But you look at what um, Sony are doing at the moment and Nikon are releasing the Z8. And I just think, who knows what we'll be able to create in the future. So as much as it's a, a bad thing as well as a good thing, 10 years ago we didn't see drones flying around and taking amazing photographs and footage. That's um, it. It used to be that when you wanted to shoot something from the air, you'd have to hire an aircraft or a helicopter at great expense. Mm. And we do do a little bit of that, but we're very selective about it. But all of these tools unlock new ways of looking at the world and new ways of being creative. And I can't really predict what the tools will be in 10 years, but I'm excited to try them out when they're here. Uh, definitely, definitely. <laughs> What's your favourite thing about being a photographer? I think the thing that really spoke to me about being a photographer and becoming a photographer, I got as a graphic designer and I had some pretty good success with that, but I hit walls. So I'm like, okay, this is about as good at design as I'm ever going to be. So I've either got to learn something else that I can bring to that toolkit to become better, or that's just how good I'm going to be at that. And I don't think photography has those same walls. I think you can always be better and you can always find new things to photograph and new ways of looking at things. So what I'm really excited about is if I was in another field, I'd probably be able to tell you what I'd be doing when I was 60 years old or, mm -hmm. you know, however old and now I just think who knows what I could be doing when I'm that age yeah right. I, I could be completely off the deep end creating weird multiple exposures that are incomprehensible I could be doing using <laughs> technology that we haven't even seen yet to photograph atoms who knows and that's what's exciting to me there's just no limit to where we can take this thing creatively and also that everyone can approach it in a different way I definitely look forward to your quantum photography. <laughs> yeah, who knows? <laughs> Are there any particular photographers that you think I should be talking to on the podcast? Yeah, I had a bit of a listen to some of your more recent episodes as well because I don't want to tread over the same ground. And sure. Mika gave you some really good suggestions from our group Lumen Australis, so Chris Saunders and Ricardo de Cuna, but I'm sure they're already on your radar. Yeah, they're uh, on I'd the say somebody a little bit more left field that probably doesn't get the attention that she's due it would be janine fletcher okay I don't know if had her recommended before but she runs a little gallery in ranfurly in new zealand and has super creative approach to landscape photography and she's also a, a judge with the nzipp and has won many awards as well not that those things really are, are the be all and end all but uh, she's right up there in her craft, so I'd recommend possibly reaching out to her. Fantastic. Thank you. i got the final question that a lot of people really want to get to the bottom of. <laughs> Do you like pineapple on pizza? So it's a two-part answer. I like that pineapple on pizza exists, um, but it's not for me. 
Okay, fair enough. I'll go with the pepperoni. Yeah, pepperoni, not pineapple. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today, Matt. It's been absolutely great to dig into some really interesting stuff with you. Where can people find your work other than at your gallery in Bright? Probably the easiest way is to go to mattpalmer.co, so .co, and that kind of links you through to other places as well. It has a bit of my work. It has a link to the gallery, and it also has a link to my YouTube, which I've neglected for a little while because it is a whole heap of work to do podcasts like this or YouTube videos and things. But there is a lot of good content up there, like image deconstruction and things like that could be of benefit. Fantastic. And thank you very much for having me as well. It's been great. Uh, absolute pleasure, Matt. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to Landscape Photography World. I hope you enjoyed the show and keep listening because I'll be joined by some great guests in upcoming episodes. You can find my work and this podcast at grantswinburnphotography.com. I'm also on Vero, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram and Facebook. I'm Grant Swinburne. Hope to see you out shooting soon. Mm-hmm.